We just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to come and look at your word, Lord. For those who are headed out and doing things, we ask you to bless them as well. And we just thank you for this day in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 15, and it's eight verses, so I'm just going to read all of it, and then we'll go back and look it over. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, what is the vine tree more than any tree, a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Shall wood be taken thereof to do any work? Or will men take a pin to it and hang any vessel thereon? Behold, it is cast into the fire for fuel. The, the fire devoureth both ends of it, and the midst of it is burned. And it is, met for, is it met for any work? Behold, when it is whole, it is met for no work. How much less shall it be met yet for any work, when the fire has devoured it and it is burned? Therefore thus saith the Lord, as the vine tree among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them, and they shall go out from one fire to fire shall devour them. And ye shall know that I am the Lord. When I have set my face against them, I will make the land desolate, because they have committed a trespass, says the Lord. So we're going to look at this. It's a, a parable that he's given, and then a definite, then a than an explanation of the parable. But it says in the tradition of Ezekiel, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, what is a vine tree more than any tree, a branch which is among the trees of the forest? So he starts out with this picture of a vine, a vine on a tree compared to the wood itself. And if you've ever seen anywhere where you've seen trees and with vines around them, the vine is really nothing. It has no strength, no, you can't cut it, you can't use it, it's, it doesn't, it's not good for much of anything. Um, and he said, and that's basically what he's saying. What is the vine tree more, more, you know, is it more important than the tree? Is that, and it's just a branch from among the trees. Shall the wood be taken thereof to do work or will men take a pin to it and hang any vessel on? And this is kind of a funny picture. Uh, you know, shall you take it down and, and plane it and make wood out of it? You know, the little vine, little, little piece of vine. Are you going to take and make anything out of it? Uh, now we could make a basket or something out of it, but I mean, technically he's saying, really, as far as wood goes, what good is the vine? And, and then I love this next picture. Or will men take a, a pin and, and hang a vessel on, or will they take a stake or a nail and, and hang something on the vine? If it's around the tree, you're going to hang it on the tree. You're not going to hang it on the vine. And this is the picture. He's kind of making this very funny picture. And this is the same thing Jesus does when he tells the parables. He gives this really kind of bizarre picture so often and says, yeah, here, we're, you know, here's a picture. Now let's spiritualize it. And he's going to spiritualize it at the end. Oftentimes, Israel is pictured as a vine as well. So he's actually talking about Israel even in this parable. Because Israel is called the vine, taken from among the, the world. And there's this picture as well as he gets in. He says, therefore, uh, as the tree, vine is, so is Israel, or Jerusalem. And Israel was taken out amongst the world as a minor being. And we think about this, and we've talked about this. Abraham was selected out of all the population of the world to be the father of Israel and that all nations would be blessed for him. And we don't know how big it was, but the, uh, big the population was at that time, but it was, 
it was getting up there again. It was about three, four hundred years after the flood, so the, the time has increased, you know, the population's increased. And he was chosen out of all the people of the world to be the righteous seed. And Israel has always been a small nation among all the nations in that area. So they have always been small and they're considered divine. Behold, it is cast into the fire for fuel. The fire divides both ends of it and the midst of it is burned. Is it meant for any work? So he's saying basically the vine is good for throwing into the fire. And that's pretty good, pretty much what it is. And it's not even, it isn't even, isn't even a, a log that burns for a long time. But he says you throw it in the fire and then it's kind of a picture that's... The fire burns it on both ends and, and chars it, and he says, then you pull it out, and he says, what use is it? It wasn't, and the point of it, it wasn't of any use before, which is why you threw it in the fire. And if it's pulled out of the fire, it's even less use. And this is quite a point if, you, if you've ever liked playing with fire, and you put something in and you try to take it out with the tongs or something, what you take out is really use, of less use than what, what it was before you put it in. If you throw a log in there, you, you had something that might have been used for something, but once the fire burns it, it's not good for anything but staying in the fireplace. And that's what he's saying on, on here on, the, on this picture. It, you know, Once it's burned on both ends, it's really not worth anything. Behold, when it was hold, it was meant for no work. Much less shall it be meant for any work when the fire devours it and it is burned. Then we get into the application. Verse 6. Therefore, says the Lord God, as the vine tree among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So again, we're seeing this curse upon Israel. And Ezekiel has been taken into captivity. He was in the first wave of captives. Daniel's been in that first wave of captives. Israel has been going to be given three different kings it is almost like Nebuchadnezzar was saying, I don't want to destroy Jerusalem. So he kept putting different kings in place and those kings would each rebel. And he's saying, I'm, God's saying, because of your rebellion, because of the king's rebellion, because of the people's rebellions, I am going to destroy Jerusalem. And again, we have talked about this. The picture of Jerusalem, the people of Israel have never believed that Jerusalem could be destroyed. Each time that it's been destroyed, they didn't believe that it could be destroyed. They had all their hope in Jerusalem because the temple of God was there. God said you had to meet three times a year in Jerusalem. So they always considered Jerusalem as impregnable. And as long as Jerusalem existed, they existed. Well, the armies came in and destroyed there. That's what he meant by that. Yeah. Yeah. No, God didn't destroy it. Uh, when the Babylonians came in, because, because Jerusalem had the temple in it, and Solomon had overlaid the temple with gold, literally the gold got in between the rocks. And when they destroyed the temple, they, they set fire to it to try to get all the gold, and then they took the rocks apart, bit each rock off each other so they could get all the gold. Then... When they rebuilt the temple, they put gold, they poured gold over it again. And when the Romans came and destroyed it, they literally took every rock apart so they could get all the gold. That's why there's rebels in Jerusalem like Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem, like any old city, is a city built upon a city built upon a city. And 
especially in the Middle East and even around here, if you find an old enough city, there's a lot of times where the city burnt down and they built the city right on top of the ashes of the city. Here in Chloride, that's true. The city, there's no original building in this, in this town from what I've been told. They're all, at, at some point, every building in this town is burnt down and they built buildings on top of it. No, it's two of any place. Chicago after the after the Chicago fire rebuilt. Uh, My history teacher taught us to tell. Like Tel Aviv is the city on top of the like a telephone pole. It's on top of each other. Like they call it a tell. Okay. I don't know that. I don't know about that. T-E-L. Tel Aviv is the city on top of the city. Yeah, but I don't think that's what tell means. I don't think that's what it means. Every place out there is a city built upon a city. Because usually a city is built someplace where it's good for a city to be built. It's got water, it's got transportation, it's got, it's got uh, agriculture nearby, or at least in, especially in the old days. Uh, so when a, if that city was destroyed, they would, just, <laughs> they would just flatten it all back out and rebuild, rebuild over the top of it. So in the Middle East, in places that are six, 7,000 years old, Cities built upon cities, and the Indians did the same thing. There were places where the, where the town was a good place to be, so you built your town there, and, and you left things there. And so, but God's saying he's going to, that as this picture of the vine being useless and being thrown in the fire, he says, so is Jerusalem. Jerusalem has become useless to him. Why? Because of their sin. The people have sinned so greatly for so long that God says, you're going into captivity. And, when, and we know that one of the big sins that they had done is that they had not practiced the Sabbath, every, Sabbath rest every seven years. Because Isaiah tells us that, that, and Jeremiah both. They say, you're going to go into captivity for, for 490 years because you did not give the land its rest for 70 seasons. And, they were to, and that's what they were supposed to do. Every seventh year, they were supposed to not plant their fields and just live on what what was produced naturally or God said I will provide for you he would give them a cr crop large enough for a two-year supply the people would sell their crop off and then not have any and not care about their Sabbath rest and this is something that has been very habitual for the Jews and even for Christians we tend not to obey God because we don't when it really comes down to it we so often do not trust him he says something and we go, God, it doesn't make any sense, so I'm not going to do it. He told the children of Israel, every seventh year, you're not to plant your crops. I will provide for you. And they didn't trust him. And so they just planted every year. And God said, no, you haven't done what I've told you. And this is important for us. God tells us to do things and we have to be able to say, God, I trust you. And this is something that is kind of amazed me over the years and I heard a pastor say this many years ago and it really struck me we will say that we have trust in God for eternal life and for eternity and yet live in a way that we don't trust him on the day-to-day -day living and when you think about that that's kind of an insane idea if I can't trust God in this world how can I trust him for eternity and this is something we need to be able to understand. If I can't trust him now, I can't really say I'm trusting him for the future. And if I'm trusting him for the future, I better be able to trust him in this day. 
And this is why when God says to do something, we need to act upon it. He's going to teach us and make us act upon it anyway. It's much easier to decide to act on it rather than go through the hassles of him forcing it upon us. And I've been there many times where I haven't listened and he's had to force things on me. He's had to force me to learn. I've learned a little better to surrender quicker and easier. The other day, God talked to me and I say, okay, God, what do you want me, how, you know, what do you want me to do? <laughs> and I changed instantly because I've learned the hard way that when he says do something, it's do it. Because he's going to have his way. He really is. Uh, we will make the choice to allow it to happen, but he's going to have his way. He is going to keep putting the pressure on until it happens. But he says to, 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 to the people, as this vine, so is Jerusalem. They're going to be put, in, put into fire. And one of the things that about fire is, another thing that fire does is, fire is God's anger, his judgment, his purification. Israel needs to be purified because they have been so rebellious. And God has given them so many chances. And God is so merciful to us and gives us many, 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 many chances, more than we ever deserve or and before he really comes down hard. But he'll make things more and more difficult as we reject him. But his mercy keeps going. And in Proverbs, and excuse me, in Psalms, it kept, many of the Psalms keep saying, his mercies endure forever. And he does. He is very merciful, and he stays very merciful. And we need to be thankful that he's merciful. If we really started counting how merciful he is for each one of our lives, we would be surprised and have to stop counting very quickly because we'd lose track. Because all of us deserve great punishment. No matter how good we live or how bad we live, we deserve punishment because we don't always do things God's way. And God is so merciful to give us. He's merciful for, with Israel for you know, over five, 600 years. He's merciful for them in their disobedience. He was merciful on the children of Israel in the, as they were in the Exodus, wandering around for 40 years, providing for them to keep them alive while the older people died out because of their disobedience of not going into the promised land. He was so merciful in so many ways in the scriptures. We look at Jonah, and Jonah's an interesting character. God tells him to go to Nineveh, and he runs the opposite way. God brings him back to Nineveh. He preaches to Nineveh to repent, because uh, in 40 days they're going to be destroyed. And Nineveh gets saved, and God's very merciful on this huge city of Nineveh, several hundred thousand people. And Jonah complains. Saying, I didn't want to come here, I didn't want to come here anyway, because I knew how merciful you were, and I knew you'd forgive them. And God, I really wanted them to destroy their our enemy. You know, it was basically what he was saying. And God was merciful. Merciful on Nineveh for its repentance and merciful on Jonah on multiple occasions. So we see the mercy of God because he is so merciful. And we've talked about mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And God is so merciful because he doesn't give us what he, we deserve. Our memory verse, God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And this is something that's hard to even imagine. We've talked about this. God created man knowing that man was going to sin. That's hard to even imagine. But he also created man 
having already decided that Jesus would die for man so that they could be redeemed when they sinned and they knew they were going to sin. That is something that is just a mind-boggling thought to me. Number one, why he would create us in the first place knowing we were going to fail. And then the price to redeem us. And he was willing to do all of this in his mercy because he loves us for whatever reason. Because most, most humans, if not all humans, are very hard to love. And God still loves us enough to have died for us. And it's just an amazing thing to him. Verse 7, And I will set my face against them, and they shall go from one fire to another fire, shall devour them. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against you. This whole idea, we've, we've seen this before in many places. God sets his face against people. And he says, I will set my face against Israel. And this is something that is, is very hard to picture, but it is that idea of he is turning his back in many ways to them and saying, I'm going against you. I'm not going to give you my mercy. I'm not, I'm not giving you any more obedience. Um, excuse me, not obedience. <laughs> He's keeping giving obedience. He's not giving them any uh, mercy at this point. He's turned his back on them and he sets his face against them. And when we read that term, you know, it's, whenever we read that term, it talks about somebody actively moving against somebody. And they're, they're not, you're not going to get a smile from them. You're not going to get any, any kindness from them. Just almost brutality. God's will is what will, will make himself glorified, whatever that takes. And for God to be glorified sometimes brings pain into our, in our lives. And this, we've talked about this many times. Our pain that we suffer may be just so that God is glorified and lifted up as somebody looks at how we go through hardship with God as our guide and comfort. Uh, been there and done that many times myself. I've seen where God has used himself to be glorified by what I've gone through. Job is a great example of somebody that goes through great pain and suffering so that he will lift up God through all millennial thereafter. And we knew know that God did a lot of things for Job as well. God trained Job and brought him up, but the greatest example people know of Job is his suffering and the patience of his suffering. He says, shall I take good from God's hand and not evil from God's hand, is what he tells his wife. Because he goes, God blesses, it's his, it's his stuff to take away. Job understood that everything belonged to God. Most people don't. Most of us want to say, well, God, it's mine. No, it's God's, and he gives it to us to be able to use it. So if he asks for it back, we should be willing to give it back. Everything's on loan from God to us, and we're stewards. Many of us aren't good stewards. And this is why when we, are, when we stand before him at the Beamer Seat as Christians, we will give an account of how we used his stuff. And it's not wrong for us to use some of his stuff for us because a steward would use stuff to feed, feed the house and keep the house up and, and even make upgrades and stuff as long as it wasn't the... As long as he could say this was good for, for the house. Now, what would happen if the steward went out and he bought a jacuzzi for his room and, 
and uh, you know, a huge, huge, uh, huge uh, big screen TV and the number one, you know, the best stereo out there, and and everybody else in the house was starving to death. Then he's going to say, "You have not been a good steward." So it's not wrong even to have nice things, but is God being lifted up? Is God being honored? If you own all these nice things, but you haven't been giving anything to God and, and helping the poor and haven't been tithing and haven't been doing this, then God's going to say, well, why did you spend it all on yourself? But God is saying here that he's going to set his face against Israel. And when he set his face against Israel, things happened. In the, in the Exodus, he set his face against them and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they refused to obey. He set his face against them at various times and Moses interceded for them. During the period of the judges, they would go into sin and rebel against God and not follow his rules. And he'd set his face against them and they would end up going into, into not technically captivity, but they would become vassals of other places and have to pay taxes and be under their, their uh, dominion. And then they would repent and God would, would, would bring them back. But God has in many times set his face against his people. And he says here, And they shall go out from one fire, and fire shall devour them, and they shall know that I am the Lord your God. Fire the judgments. They shall go from one judgment to another judgment, and then to another judgment. And I don't know if you've ever been there where you've been rebellious enough that you just keep going from judgment to judgment to judgment to judgment until you finally decide... God, uh, I think I've had enough. I give up. The good thing is when you, when you mature a little bit and you realize that one fire is really more than you really want to experience and you give up after one fire, even better is to give up before you have to go through the fire at all. But I've been there, done it, you know, been through a period of years on one, on one judgment where God kept saying, you're a really slow learner. Here you go. Here's another Here's another one, here's another one, here's another one. And when God turns away from somebody and sends multiple sets of judgment against you, we need to be very careful about that because God is saying, I want you to be my servant. I want you to love me. And he really wants to do it out of love. He really does not want to have to force us to be obedient. Just as when you're a parent, you're not looking to to force your kids to do what they're, what they're supposed to, even though you know you need to. The greatest blessing as a parent is when your children obey you just because they choose to obey you, and it's not because you've spanked them so many times that they finally got tired of being spanked or whatever, you know, whatever discipline you've used. They're, the greatest time is when they finally mature and they start doing things without having to be coerced and forced to do it. And God's looking for that in our lives. Are we growing to the place where we can obey for the sake of being obedient? Not to avoid getting into trouble. Now, God will use that if that's what it's taken. And here he's saying, I'm going to put you through one fire after another until you have learned to be obedient. If that's what it takes, God is willing to do that. But the greatest pleasure in, in for God is obedience because... We love him enough to be obedient. And this is where it shows maturity. This is where we've crucified our flesh. Our flesh isn't battling anymore. And we've just surrendered to God. 
And there's such a blessing in being surrendered to God. There's the peace of, peacefulness of it, number one. Um, when you obey God, you don't have to worry about all the trials and everything that are going on. The idea of God sending judgment. He is going to get his way. This is something we have to learn as good servants of God is eventually he's going to have his way. Uh, he tells us that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And we can either do that voluntarily or not. And if it's not voluntary, when you stand before him at the white throne judgment, you will bow. Satan will bow even though he's been the troublemaker for all of that period of time, he will bow and confess that, that Jesus is Lord, and he will bow and can make that confession, and he will be forced to. He's not going to want to do it, but he will be forced to, and every human who doesn't do it on this earth and accept Jesus Christ as their Savior will be forced to before they're cast into hell, which is their, by their choice. Our choice is to d declare it before. As a Christian... We have said, God, you are Lord and Savior. Then he's going to start teaching us what it means that he's Lord. And he's going to enforce us to learn what it means that he's Lord. And he'll keep making life difficult. And if you haven't been there, you will be. Where he says, okay, I want you to do this. And you don't do it. And he says, okay, let me put, turn the pressure up. And you still don't do it. And he keeps turning the pressure up until you finally decide to be obedient. And the, and the course on this is, are you going to make it a short, short pressure time? Uh, maybe no pressure time by being obedient up front? And this is where maturity comes in. The more mature we become, the easier we start saying, God, I'm going to just listen to you. I'm going to be obedient, and I'm going to do it quicker. Or we continue to make it difficult. We probably all have been there. If you haven't, you will be there before, before long, where God will get his way. Even if it takes years, <laughs> he will get obedience. And if he doesn't, he'll turn his face against you and really make life difficult. And this is where he is with Jerusalem at this point. But the whole purpose of this pressure upon us, as it says in verse 7 here, is, And you shall know that I am the Lord. God's purpose in the trials is always that he gets exalted. That he is showing that he is in charge, he is the Lord, he is the master, he is the ruler, and everything. And we've talked about this. Even in Revelation, for all the bad things that happened in the book of Revelation for seven years, his whole purpose is to bring people to him. And he's going to say that most of them are going to say, no, we're not going to come to you, and they're gonna, there's going to be many people who die. And we've, we, when we did the book of Revelation, we talked about how probably 60% of the population of this world is going to die during that seven years of tribulation just from the numbers were given. Huge amount of death and destruction, but it's all designed to bring people to God. Everything he does in this world is to draw people to him. He will either do it strictly from love and most people do not respond to love that well. We, we know it. We've seen it. When you're kind to people, even as a Christian, so often they want to take advantage of you, and yet we're to love people just as Christ loves them. When God shows his love, people oftentimes will try to take advantage of him, including us as Christians. 
And it oftentimes takes his discipline to say, I want your attention. I want your obedience. I want you to turn to me. Israel was released out of, the, out of Egypt through the ten plagues so that Egypt would finally pay attention. And Pharaoh had first hardened his own heart, and then at the end God hardened his heart to make sure that he wasn't going to change his mind. And he still changed his mind and went after them. Israel was totally, excuse me, Egypt was totally destroyed by the ten plagues. Their, their economy, their religious side, because each one of those plagues, as we talked about when we did that, was, a, was an attack against one of their gods, if not more than one of their gods. And God says, I'm going to defeat your gods, I'm going to destroy your economy, Things are going to, and then I'm going to destroy your families, and you're going to let my people go. And then Pharaoh chased after him, and he destroyed Pharaoh's army when they chased him into the Red Sea. And then Egypt was conquered, and, and a dynasty change happened. So we see all of this. When God is going to get his way, he's going to make things happen so that he will be sovereign. And we've got to understand, he is sovereign, and he will be sovereign. And when you disobey a sovereign, pressure gets put on. You get thrown into prison, whatever. You, you're, you're going to pay. And God says, I am the Lord. I am the ruler. I am the master. You're going to pay attention to us. And as we as his children, we are going to be made during our walk on this world to be obedient to him. Because we have chosen to make him our Lord and Savior. The rest of the world... God's going to try to draw them to him. He may make things difficult for them as well to draw them to him. But they may or may not get, seem to be getting away with things. They will pay for it in the long run. And this is something we've talked about that when we look, especially in, Psalms, in the Psalms class, when, when we look at people and they seem to be being blessed and they're rebelling against God. And, we, and remember, note that I put they seem to be blessed. Because they seem to have everything, but they don't have joy. They don't have comfort. They don't have peace. They're looking for something. How many people have gotten rich and wealthy and found out that it wasn't what they thought it was going to be? They, they thought if they had enough to buy whatever they wanted, it was going to make them happy. And they find out that it's not. If they had enough status in the, as a sports sports star. They were going to be really happy by being, everybody would love them. They'd be the idol of the people and they found out that that wasn't enough. They make it to the top of the, the singing or the, or the movie world and it's just not enough to be idolized. It's, it doesn't satisfy. We need to be careful when we look at somebody and say, well, I need to be just like them. They've got everything. Now, we want to be very careful with that because they probably don't have everything. They're not probably happy. And if they're not happy with God, then they're not going to be happy with stuff. And that's why Paul says, I've learned to be content in much and in little. And, and if you read the book of Acts, there was times when Paul seemed to have a lot. And then there were times when he had nothing. As a matter of fact, he was in prison. And he didn't have anything. He had to work hard. And then there were times when it seemed like he had things. And he, by his own admission, said, my happiness and my joy is not in the stuff that I have. It's in God. So when God blessed him, he was happy and probably used it to support God's work. And when he had nothing, he was happy and used whatever he could to support God's work. So you just got to make choices We have to make the choice that we trust God, that God knows what he's doing and that God is what we're seeking.
There's an old poem. Let's see if I can get it right. I used to seek the gifts, but now the giver I seek. And this is what many Christians start out desiring what God will give them. And, and as we grow, we want to seek after him with or without gifts. We just seek after God. And then once we start seeking after God, he usually starts giving the gifts even in a greater way because he is the one that we're seeking and he knows that we're going to use what he gives us and give it back to him and his kingdom. But when I'm seeking after the gifts, I'm going to get greedy and say, this is mine. I'm not giving it to anybody. When I'm seeking after the giver, then it's like, God, I just want to, I want to pour back out to other people so that you are, you are lifted up. You are elevated. And this is where we see some of the people that have been multimillionaires in the, in the early days of this country especially, they gave to God. They gave to God. And there were a couple of people that gave God 90% of everything that came in on the business, and they were multimillionaires in the 1800s which you figured they would be billionaires in our day, but they gave God a 90% of everything they made, which means they gave away, you know, if they were a millionaire, they gave away $9 million plus to, to serve God. Do we have that kind of attitude? Am I willing to say, God, I trust you enough to just give? But it all comes down to, do I trust him? And he says, do this, I do it. And it's not for everybody to give 90%. If God, doesn't, if God doesn't tell you to give 90%, don't go out and give 90%. But if he starts saying, I want you to give more, then the question is, God, how much more do you want me to give? And you give how much he tells you to give. But we look at this from God's point. Who are we seeking after? Who is, am I wanting to be obedient on? And do I trust God? And when we did the Truth Project, the tagline on the Truth Project was, do you believe that what you believe is really uh, real? Okay? And everything about the test of God is to prove to us, do we truly trust him in whatever area? And this is why I say, when we've learned to, when God says he wants us to learn to give, he's going to test us. When we start giving, things are going to get difficult and it's going to be hard to give. When he says, I want you to learn to forgive people, he's going to put some people that somebody's going to do something that's going to be very hard to forgive. When he says, I want you to learn to love people better, he's going to find, you're going to find some people in your life very quickly who are very hard to love. You know, every time God's teaching you to advance in some area that he teaches you to do, he's going to say, do you trust me enough that even when it looks like I don't have control, you're going to trust me? And this is the hardest thing that we end up doing. God, I'm doing something great service for you. Why is life getting so difficult? Because God is allowing Satan to say, are you willing to keep serving? God put you in the service. Are you willing to keep serving? Even when everything looks like it's going crazy. God, I went to this great event and all of a sudden my car broke down and I, the tires all went flat. What are you doing to me? God says, are you trusting me? You know, are you trusting me? God, I decided I was going to give 30% of my income because I really thought you meant, and all of a sudden, I've got all these new bills in my, in my life. And God's saying, are you trusting me? Are you trusting me? Will you trust me? Do you really believe that I said to do this, and are you willing to trust? All the time, his, he's out there saying, are you going to trust me? Because his, he's looking for us to say, God, it's all yours.
And it really is all his. And our life is his. So even if he wants to make our life miserable and hard and give us rewards in heaven, then that's, what, that's his business to do as well. You know, and that's what Job says. She said, you know, uh, naked I came into this world, naked I'll, naked I'll leave, and God, it all belongs to God anyway. Uh, he told his wife, as we said earlier, you know, I, shall I accept good from God and not evil? Because he understood very clearly that everything belonged to God. Paul, when he said, I've learned to be content in much and with, with little, so was saying the same thing. It's all God's. If God doesn't want me to have much, then I'll put all my faith on him and he'll have to survive. He'll, he'll have to make me survive. All my needs will be prevented, prevented, provided by God. Now, he doesn't necessarily provide wants, but when, when we're in the right place, he'll also provide wants occasionally, as long as we won't be using them completely upon ourselves and be able to honor him and lift him up. But we look at this. All of this was so that people would know that he is the Lord. Everything, everything we go through is so we will know, that we will know, people will know he is the Lord. Because the world is watching us. When we go through hard times with a joy and peace in our heart, people watch us. How can you stay peaceful in all this chaos? How can you stay joyful when you've lost everything? How can you still trust God when everything's been taken away from you? And it's like, because he is the giver. He is the giver. He is the provider. He will meet my needs. And they watch us. And then they watch us get rewarded again afterwards and they go, I think I want that God. That draws people to God, especially when we're successful through it all. And then verse 8, And I will make their land desolate because they have committed a trespass, says the Lord God. Talking again to Israel. Israel has been disobedient to God. He's taken them into captivity. And God says, I'm going to make your land desolate. And the land of that area has been made desolate. It's now being revived. Now that Israel's back in their land, it's starting to be revived. But it is for a millennia almost, it was nothing but desert and empty space. A place that nobody wanted to be at. And it might have even been two millennia. But God says, I'm going to destroy it. Wild animals are going to run. Why did God send them into their land? He said it is a fruitful place, a place of milk, milk and honey. Flowing. When the, when the spies went in and they pulled out, they came back with the produce, they had the, the bunch of grapes that they held on a staff between two men. Now, I don't know if that was a really, really great big grapes or just a really great big uh, bunch of grapes. I don't know which it was, but it took two men to carry the, the grapes. We want to talk about a land flowing with milk and honey and productive and very good land to live in. It was. And through their disobedience, they destroyed, the land was destroyed. And now Israel is back in the land, and we're seeing Israel, the little tiny nation of Israel, feeds Europe. Feeds Europe with all the stuff that they produce out of that little tiny land. They are the breadbasket of Europe. And God is blessing again. But God is saying, your disobedience brings desolation. And this is true even in our lives. If we are going to be disobedient to God, it brings desolation into our life for at least a short time until we repent. 
So if we don't want to have our lives really rough, then we need to be obedient. And even in, obe in obedience, as Job shows us, there may still be problems. And we just need to trust God because God is trying to teach. And in Job's case, we know many things that were being taught. He wanted to re-teach Job a little bit of his doctrine because Job, if you read the book of Job, Job really believed in the prosperity gospel that's being preached today. You know, if you do good things, God blesses and you'll be rich. And you, you hear that all through his conversation between him and his, and his friends. And so, again, it points out to us there's nothing new under the sun. The prosperity gospel has been around from the very beginning and it's still being preached to this day in spite of the book of Job teaching them that's not true. And we see his theology being changed by his, what he went through. We're seeing him being exalting God in all, in all of this. So God is exalted through, through, his, through his trials. And that's what God is always looking to do. Each time we go through trials, he is teaching us to be dependent upon him and maybe even trying to change what we believe about him. And this is something that is very true. If we want to learn how loving God is, we're going to find out how loving he is. And he teaches us to love people. We'll find out how loving he is by him increasing our amount of love toward people. How forgiving is he? You know, he will put people in to teach us how to forgive and show us that he is even more forgiving. The one thing I have to say is, whatever you think about God, especially in the right side, he's more than. He's more powerful than anything you can think of. He's bigger than anything you can think of. He encompasses more of time than anything you can think of. Uh, he is, how big do you think he is in loving? Multiply that, you're not even close. No matter how big you think he is on his forgiving, multiply it, you're not close because God is so much more than anything we can comprehend. And the longer you walk with him, the bigger he gets. <laughs> And you're still too small no matter how big you think he is. And as big as I think God is, he's still much bigger than what I think he is. And, and if I live for another 20 or 30 years and he's bigger, he'll still be bigger <laughs> than, than whatever I think. Because he encompasses everything and he is so much more than anything I can comprehend. Because he is more. He is greater than anything we can, we can fathom. And this is something we've got to keep in mind. The bigger we think he is, then he's going to prove that he's even bigger than that. He created all things. He encompasses all things. If there's multiple universes out there like physics is telling us, he encompasses all those universes. And it's no problem if he encompasses all those universes. If they're totally different than ours, it doesn't matter because he created it. He is over everything. He is above time and has... And whatever time is in heaven is above that time. And he is outside of that time. And he is outside of everything that's out there. And that's how big our God is. And we're going to go ahead and close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to come before you and to look at your word. And just to consider how big you are. And that you desire everything to be lifting you up. Help us to see that and understand that in your son's name. Amen.